Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. We hope you're going to be able to join us this week in Washington, D.C. at the ASHT annual meeting. And if you can't be there in person, don't forget that the meeting is hybrid this year so you can enjoy the sessions from the comfort of your home. On today's episode, we are joined by Anne Pareto Lurkey to discuss joint mobilizations of the elbow. She actually just recently presented a webinar for ASHT on this very topic. So if you didn't catch that, you will get a sneak peek of some of the information that she covered in her webinar, as well as some other tips and tricks. We are certain that this episode will make you want to go back and listen to her webinar to learn more. So hey, everyone, we have Anne with us this evening. And Anne, before we get started on our topic this evening, can you give us a little bit about what you're currently doing? And are you practicing, teaching, whatever you may be doing? <laughs> Fill us in. Sure. Well, my name is Anne, Anne Pareto Lurkey. I have been practicing now 28 years. I'm a PT but when people ask me what I do for a living, I say I'm a hand therapist because I feel like I'm a kind of a hybrid OTPT because I've I've been in the hand therapy world since, let's see, 2001. I've worked at the hand clinic I'm at for the last 21 years. It's a large center, so it's nice. We have like 20 therapists and I used to be a manager, but now I'm the clinical development coordinator. So it's kind of a fun job because I get to train a lot of the new therapists. I meet with them every three weeks and do mentorship. We go through like techniques. We go through difficult patient situations. So it's kind of fun. I can live vicariously through all their caseloads, as well as I have a 75% caseload myself. And I treat kind of everything probably like half and half shoulders and hands, as well as elbows, kind of a combination of post-surgical and conservative. So it's, it's a nice mix. And so I do that. And then I also teach continuing education courses. I teach like weekend courses, usually like twice a month, probably a little too much with having a husband and 12 year old daughter, but I love doing it. It's so fun. And I love meeting therapists from all over and finding out how different people practice. And it's fun that it's recharged to go back to work Monday morning, having met like an awesome group of people. And so that's kind of, I think what's really kept me going. I love teaching and helping people to succeed. I, I love seeing like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can try this on a patient on Monday. And then, you know, they email me, oh, I tried this and this, and it worked really well. Thank you. And I'm like, that just makes my day. So, so yeah, I, I feel like I've got kind of a, the dream job right now to be able to do both of those things. And that it really drives me. It's it's fun. I love reading research. I love putting courses together. It's I know it's kind of weird, crazy, but I, I that's <laughs> what makes me tick. <laughs> <laughs> so our, our topic this evening is manual therapy for the elbow. And we have a webinar that is available in our library that Anne actually recorded back in August. So we're going to kind of give you everyone a little bit of a teaser about what it is manual therapy of the elbow. So give us a little bit of an explanation of the benefits of manual therapy and why that is an area that you found interest in. So when you think about manual therapy, manual therapy is the actual hands-on 
you know, performing joint mobilization techniques, but it's also the clinical problem solving approach and figuring out, you know, like what brought that patient to the point where they're having that capsular restriction, I think is important. And this is where it goes back to the work of Dr. James Syriax. And that's kind of the approach that I've followed and that I've been trained in and that I teach. So what he teaches, and we, we think about the whole idea of a capsular pattern, we think about it from the side of the shoulder, like that's in school, like we talk about a capsular pattern with a frozen shoulder, but a capsular pattern can occur in any joint because of one of three reasons due to trauma, immobilization, or the one that we don't touch as, as therapists is to systemic disorder. And the capsular pattern is basically is that the whole capsule has undergone a synovitis and we see a predictable limit of motion that occurs. And with the elbow, it's actually, we think about, we have a lot of extension limits, but the true capsular pattern for the elbow or the humeral ulnar joint is flexion is four times more limited than extension. That's the true capsular pattern. And there's capsular pattern and non-capsular pattern. And a non-capsular pattern, I hate the definition, is anything other than a capsular pattern. Well, like, great. <laughs> That's not helpful. <laughs> so basically what that means is you've got to do more testing to figure out. So maybe the patient like had a lateral ulnar collateral ligament repair, and maybe they were blocked in full extension for a period of a few weeks, and their extension is limited, but they've got full flexion. That would be considered a non-capsular pattern. And, and what that basically means is, for in this case, it's not the whole capsule involved, it's just the anterior capsule limiting extension. But the important piece is the problem solving to figure out is it a capsular problem? Because if it's something else, if it's like a bony limit, like because they have HO developing, or if they have some other kind of instability causing loose bodies, something like that, you don't want to mobilize it. And I think that's that's the critical piece of understanding, like, when do I mobilize this? And when do I say, hey, this is not something I want to mobilize because I can make things worse. So going through that systematic approach and testing to determine, hey, do it, is this a capsular issue? There can also, as far as when we think about elbow issues, we can think about soft tissue restrictions. If you're in a mobilized position for a period of time, you may have soft tissue restrictions at the biceps and brachialis along with the anterior capsule. But if you don't get that capsule moving, you can only loosen up that elbow so much with soft tissue techniques. So it's figuring out like getting to the root of the problem. And that is the and philosophy of Dr. James Syriax is if there's a problem with the joint, you treat the joint first. So not that you ignore the other things, you still treat that, but you've got to make sure that you're addressing the capsule. And the beauty of manual therapy techniques or joint mobilization techniques, especially for the elbow, is you can still use static progressive splints and other things. It's an adjunct. So, so there's a lot of different ways because we know with stiff elbows, I mean, some of them are like concrete, right? <laughs> so the more that you can do your techniques, and there's some really nice techniques we go through it as far as in the webinar that we're doing some medial and lateral gliding, like, and I liken it to like jiggling a drawer. It's like when a drawer is stuck, and this is probably old fashioned drawers that don't have the nice track, but like the good old wooden drawers, you pull the drawer, the drawer is stuck. What do you do? You jiggle it back and forth. 
And then that helps the drawer move. So there's some techniques to jiggle that drawer, some medial and lateral gliding that you can do to further enhance that mobility because the humeral ulnar joint is such a tight articulation. You get even a little bit of swelling in there and you see significant range of motion limits. So if you can address that capsule restriction, you can improve that mobility. You're gonna see a, a significant improvement then in their angular motion. Because just passively stretching, you're only gonna get so far. And sometimes you can get like a tilt effect that you have some impingement going on in the joint. So that's going to irritate it further. So the techniques that we, we went through in the webinar are traction techniques for the humeral ulnar joint. We can't glide because it's such a tight articulation. So doing some traction techniques, opening that space a little bit, and this is where we use a belt to stabilize the humerus. It's going to make it easier on us. There is a love hate relationship with belts. You know, like people hate them at first, then they practice with them and then suddenly find out, hey, this is nice. This is an extra pair of hands. But using a belt to stabilize the proximal humerus can be a big help so that you can just work on the ulna and you can feel that traction. And when when people practice on you're like, oh, I can really feel that. That little bit of extra give can have a profound effect on the mobility with elbow flexion extension. And thinking about too, the cap so the elbow is three joints, really. They all share a common capsule, the humeral ulnar joint, humeral radial joint, where the radial head articulates with the capitulum, but also then the proximal radial ulnar joint, where the radial head articulates with the proximal aspect of the ulna. So we can also see forearm rotation limits when you have a stiff elbow, not only flexion extension. So we also went over some techniques to address that. And that can be helpful for stiff elbow. It can be helpful for lateral elbow pain if they've got hypermobility in a dorsolateral direction, pulling that radial head in. And, and that's been kind of neat to see over the last like 10 years. One thing I love about like looking at the research is how things have changed, like the recognition with especially lateral elbow pain. I don't want to steal Jim's thunder, Jim Wagner from his webinar, but <laughs> to appreciate how much that the joint is now involved. And we're seeing that with chondropathies at the capitulum, at the radial head and hypermobility problems with the radial head. And if you can get that radial head moving in realigned, that can unload not only the tendon, the ECRB and EDC, but it can also unload the radial nerve. So there's a lot of things that's not just addressing the stiff elbow that we cover in the webinar, but things that can be helpful for other, like you know, radial nerve issues or lateral elbow pain. So going back to kind of the beginning, so you've got a stiff elbow and you you want to employ some of these techniques, but you need to figure out what truly is going on here. Where do you start? Do you start at day of evaluation? Do you, is this something that you pick up after a couple of visits? And where do you go from there? That's a great question because especially when you think about someone that had trauma or that had surgery, you can't jump in right away. You're going through, if they can do active, active assistive emotion, when they're cleared for passive motion is when you can do your assessment. So that's when you can assess both their passive limits to get an idea if, if it's a capsular pattern or if the capsule, a portion of the capsule is involved. And that's when you can start your manual techniques. And the tractioning technique for the humeral ulnar joint is actually more gentle than doing passive motion, but we wait until they're, they're cleared for passive. So that may be if someone's you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about if they had an olecranon fracture and maybe they're in a long arm splint for three or four weeks, that may not be till six or eight weeks, but when they're cleared is when you can start to evaluate that. So excellent question. 
So once you have that initial go ahead to start the mobilization, how do you assess for what glides you're going to do or what mobilizations you're going to do without kind of giving away too much in the webinar? But, you know, give us a like a just a summary of that, of where to start those clinicians that maybe have not done any manual therapy at all on the elbow. Where do they start? So for range of motion limits with elbow flexion extension, the traction technique for the humeral joint's a great place to start. And we typically start with what we call the maximal loose pack position of the joint. And what that means is where you have the most looseness of the capsule and that's 70 degrees of elbow flexion and 10 degrees of supination. So that's a nice place to start. And then you can pre-position further, whether when we think about the coupled motion at the elbow. So when we, when we flex our elbow, we supinate. That's a coupled motion. When we extend, we pronate. So we use those prepositions then to further tease or stretch that capsule. So when we perform our traction technique, that's going to further enhance the motion. But the humeral ulnar joint, because of that tight articulation, you have traction that you can do, and then you have the jiggling the drawer, the medial and lateral, and that's really all you have. But starting off where the joint has got the most give is a great place to start and then start to preposition. And I would encourage, especially if you're new to this, like practice on a friend, practice like the belt, because I think that's the biggest thing. People are like, oh, you know, I I don't know how to do this belt. And I think if you can practice that several times to feel confident, because people like they throw the belt. I see belts sometimes like knotted up and like thrown in the back of a drawer. And I'm like, okay, who tried? (laughs) They're like, forget this. I'm not using this. But practicing with that to help stabilize. So so you have that confidence to put the belt on the patient. You'll find your hands then are free. Then it's so much easier on your body. And that's the one thing too. I mean, I, I've been practicing a long time and I think it's really imperative that people learn good body mechanics. So they're not overusing. I, the thing that I, makes me cringe is when I see a therapist that's been out for a year and I look at their thumbs doing a zigzag deformity. And it's like, no, we, we try to minimize like, minimal to zero thumb use and let's use other parts of our body. Let's do a lot of these techniques are done in standing where you let your hips guide the motion that you're doing and your form is in the motion that you're mobilizing. So your whole body's doing the work. So it's more weight shifting that you're doing and less arm work. And I kind of learned that the hard way when I started doing manual therapy, I, I was sitting and I was using my arms and I was like getting tendinopathy type things. I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, I got to do this different. And you spend a lot more time in the standing position, but you let the bigger muscles do the work. And then you find that takes the stress off your hands. So that's an important piece too, is from the beginning, when you start to learn and try these techniques that you, that you make sure your body's in the direction that you're going to be mobilizing, it makes it so much easier. Then you don't have to think about it. You just have to shift your weight and let the bigger muscles do the job. Do you have any tips or tricks for maybe an arm that's a little bit larger and how do you know what you're looking for and what you're assessing that you are truly feeling what you're supposed to be feeling or how to put your hands. I know it's hard to explain this through a podcast, but are there any tips on that, on getting comfortable with hand placement and feeling, feeling what you truly are supposed to feel through the layers of the skin and the muscle and feeling for that joint? 
like if you have someone that you can practice with and feeling because everyone's got a different collagen extensibility and we feel that with our patients, you know, some are very stretchy and how do I know what their normal is, is you always want to test that uninvolved side to feel what is their normal excursion and end feel because someone that's really lax, you may feel like, oh my gosh, they're unstable. That, that may be just them or someone who's rock solid stiff. So if you can test that uninvolved side and then test their involved side, you can really get a, a clinical picture of how stiff they are. So we, we always think about looking at those two E's, the excursion, how far can I go when I'm testing? And then what's the end feel? Is it firm, which an elbow is a capsule ligamentous structure. We expect that to have a firm end feel, but a hard end feel tells us, okay, that collagen is not giving. We've got some restrictions there. So that's a good way starting off to feel what their normal is. But I would encourage someone who is new to manual therapy to test some of their coworkers and feel the difference because what you're going to find is the lighter you are, the more you're going to feel. And everyone always, and I did too, I started out very heavy handed. And now it's like, I'm so much lighter because you can feel more because when you come in guns blazing and you really are pushing, they're going to guard and then you're not going to feel anything. So really less is more, but the more that you can practice that feel, the easier it's going to get. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the guarding. I think sometimes is it a restriction or is it that they're guarding? And, and I think that's something that we as therapists need to be careful of if we just keep pushing against their guarding and you're not going to make any progress. You're not, you're not helping either of you. (laughs) And too, I think too, you bring up a valid point. We don't want to cause pain. If there's something that we're doing that's causing pain, I look at number one, maybe two, they're more sensitized. So it's not even a time to do the manual therapy for their joint. Maybe it's time to just work on soft tissue techniques only and not work on the joint, but also then thinking about two, like if something's causing pain and I'm not doing it correctly, I need to change my position because if I'm causing pain, I'm creating more synovitis in that joint and I'm going to cause that capsule to stiffen up more. And in general, I think for elbows, we, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel like I see a lot fewer stiff elbows than I used to, you know, like 20 years ago, everybody, when they had a cubital tunnel had like a submuscular ulnar nerve transposition, we're making a long arm splint, they were blocked 30 degrees from full extension. So then they ended up with a flexion contracture. Yeah, their nerve was happy. But so I think to some of the new techniques too, that we see as far as the plate and fiber wire for biceps, you know, biceps reattachments, they can move, you know, when that first came out, like what? we can move them full arm. What? You know, like that just, but I think that has helped. We do still see our stiff elbows with a lot of fractures, olecranon fractures with a terrible triad. There's always significant stiffness, but I think in general for some of the other lesser procedures to address ulnar nerve issues and distal biceps repairs, we see less where we're maybe doing more neuromuscular reeducation techniques. We're guiding the motion, not actually having to mobilize the joint, which is kind of nice. So again, to our listeners out there who maybe this is something new or even treating an elbow is new to them. When you're doing these techniques, what should you expect to feel or what should you expect 
to see an improvement in range of motion from like maybe session to session or week to week? Like, should you be seeing significant increases in range of motion? Or if you're getting two to three degrees or, you know, five to eight degrees, is that something that's more acceptable? Because I know as with any joint, you're not expecting to see huge gains, but is, you know, the elbow can be a little tricky because of the joint itself, but any insight to that? Question. And I think this is like this with other joints as well. I think you're going to see big gains the first few weeks. And then like when they have more end range, then it's like a slow go. Right. And then you become the cheerleader as well as that. like, it's okay. We're getting there. But I think it's important. I'm a hyper measurer. Like I like to measure when they come in. I like to measure when they're done, but I tell them the most important measurement is when they come in the next come time, back. because I yeah. want to look where they ended and where they're coming in. And in general, like early on, it's not unusual that you may get a five to eight degree improvement within the session. And you want to see them hold at least like three to five degrees of that when they come in next, when it gets more to that end range where end range extension or flexion, we either one, that one, then that's where sometimes too, like just having them doing like a passive stretch at home, maybe they need, you know, like a dropout splint to help get that, that last little bit. So I think again, early on, you're going to see more. And it's interesting when, when you start like with the traction technique for the humeral ulnar joints, I say, you know what? this is like the itch that I can't scratch. This, I, I feel like I need this. Something's happening, you know? And you're like, <laughs> I hope it's good, right? <laughs> but I think you'll see the first three to four weeks, then as they get more to end range, it is slower gains. And I think too, setting up the expectation, like if they had a terrible triad or they had significant injury, or they're diabetic, they've got other comorbidities, they may not get that full range. But you're like, my goal is for flexion, that you can wash your face, you know, maybe they're not going to get to the point, I always know they're doing well when they can get their earring for females, when they can get their earring, <laughs> they're good with flexion, but extension too. I mean, setting up the expectation that, hey, you know what, you may have a 15 or 20 degree limit, but that may be because of the nature of this injury, where we're going to get. So they realize like functionally, they're still going to be able to do things, but their elbow may not be perfect. And that's, it all ties back to their history, you know, their injury, comorbidities, all of those things. And I've learned that over the years, you know, when I was a young new therapist, I was like, I wanted everyone to be perfect, but sometimes that's not going to happen. And it's, it's better to start setting that stage early on than then to have them be like, no, I need to get perfect. And it, and it may not, even with a capsule release, it may not. So it's a hard lesson, but it's better to set that up early. I feel like. In the elbow, are there any mobilizations that you can have patients perform at home on themselves, like self-mobilizations? I know that like with the hip and the ankle and the wrist, even you can use some of the, some bands to support and hold. Are there any that you ever suggest for your patients to do for the elbow? So that's a good question. You can do a tractioning technique where you're taking a belt and I'll tell patients like, Go to Goodwill or St. Vincent de Paul and buy two belts, put them around and loop them together and putting it around the elbow and showing them that 45 degree angle from the ulna that you want to pull. And they can use in standing, holding their, like supporting their elbow and then pulling down on that belt to provide that traction force. I don't show that to a lot because a lot of people just can't get 
that. But for those patients that can, it's more difficult. I'll tell you, usually I'll have patients just do like for flexion, I'll have them do flexion with preposition supination, and I'll have them do it on a countertop with a towel. They're stretching into flexion and extension. I'll have them going up against the wall and blocking so that they're trying to get end range and really watching their scapula because they like to cheat with that. But it's a little more tricky. Like someone has to be pretty mechanically inclined to do that just because again, there's a lot of angles. And when you think about the humeral ulnar joint articulation, you know, it's very easy to get the coronoid impinging or the olecranon impinging. So it's a little harder, but that's a great question. I think you bring up a good point of that. Just, I think a skill or a something to remember with manual therapy, no matter what joint is remembering the the physics, the kinematics, the joint, the angles, because you have to make sure that you're in the right plane and moving in the right directions. So you aren't putting those shearing forces or you aren't. So us physics, not <laughs> yeah. great. A- <laughs> <laughs> I have to remember that. <laughs> I did not do well in physics, but I, I have to remember this with joint mobilizations. Well, you had physics, a lot of programs do- physics so it's like (laughs) the whole torque thing and I had a a great kinesiology professor in PT school Don Newman and he has a book called yes kinesiology and the musculoskeletal we used it in PT school yes and it's a great book because it really helps like you to understand the joint arthrokinematics. And for those that, that haven't had a lot of kinesiology, that's a really good foundation. And I have, I encourage newer therapists to purchase that book because it's, the illustrations are amazing. I mean, and he is a very meticulous guy. He, like he spent six years meeting with the, his medical illustrator before his first book was published. I mean, and everything is perfect. And he always said, like, if he wasn't a professor, he would pan therapist because he loves the mechanics of the hand. You know, he, he built a giant finger in his barn. I mean, what guy does that, right? <laughs> Rotted it. It's like foot finger. He made it out of wood and then he added the extensor mechanism. It was just great. But that, that text is really nice just to help appreciate the mechanics of the humeral ulnar joint, how the interaction with the proximal radial ulnar joint, how the radius rotates around the ulna really gives you a good foundation. Cause like, like you said, if you don't have that foundation, how are you going to, you know, know the angles because in the elbow is very easy to cause some impingement. So like when we talk about the jiggling, the drawer, that medial lateral glide, you have to respect the trochlea and the trochlea. If you look on cadavers or even just models, the trochlea is anywhere angled from 30 to 60 degrees. So if you're doing a lateral glide, you don't want to go straight lateral. You've got to respect that angle. So, you know, we follow, we say 60, even though some people's 30, but We follow a 60 degree angle from the medial lateral epicondyles as our reference point, just to ensure we're not going to impinge the trochlea, but then we're still going to end up doing something good for the joint to get that loosened up in that range. So you had mentioned earlier, you know, there's a couple contraindications that you need to keep in mind if you would like to begin doing this on some of your patients. What are some of those contraindications? I know HO is an important one, but how if that patient themselves, and I'm kind of jumping ahead, maybe have not been diagnosed with HO, how do you differentiate between, you know, is that actually starting or is it just the joint itself being stiff? So like with someone that's developing HO, 
what you're going to feel is a very hard end feel and you're going to see a gradual loss of motion. And this is why it's important to measure because you're going to see it progressively getting worse over the course of you know, two, three weeks. And usually because we're the ones that see the patient most often, we're going to be the first ones to pick up on that and say, Hey, can we have an x-ray on this patient? I don't, something's going wrong, but that's why I think that the critical piece with measuring and assessing that end feel is really important because especially in the elbow, you know, some people you're like, what's going on with this? Why is this? And lo and behold, they have HO. (laughs) And I think that's much more common. We don't see it really at the wrist or the or the shoulder, but at the elbow, that's something that we need to keep in mind. As far as contraindications for joint mobilization, there's really not a lot. There are if you do manipulations, but not so much mobilization. So a manipulation is a high velocity. It's it's fast, but not hard. It's a high velocity, low amplitude thrust. And we really don't for the elbow, besides like for a loose body, we really don't do manipulations. We do mobilization. So when we think about grades of mobilization, so a grade four would be picking up all the slack and you can either oscillate it on range or do a static hold. A grade three is going to the end of the range and doing an oscillation at the last 25% of that motion. Grade three and grade four oscillations are designed for patients to get mobility. So I, how I explain it to patients, I'm like, okay, you take out ramen noodles out of a package. So you see all those beautiful curled noodles, but they're all stuck together and they're hard. You put that in hot boiling water and what happens? It starts to loosen up and uncoils the collagen. What we're trying to do is take the ramen noodles in your elbow that are, that's the capsule. That's a nice hard, you know, we want to then start to loosen up, give it some give. That little bit of give is going to make a big difference than with your motion, your angular motion. So thankfully, there's not a lot of contraindications, but it's more as you talked about, it's pain. Like if they're painful, we only want to do a a grade one or grade two mobilization. So a grade two would be going 50% of the range. We're not picking up all the slack of the capsule. We're just going to that mid-range 50% and we're oscillating or grade one is just 25. That's great for pain relief. So you think about, we have a pain dominant patient and a stiff dominant patient. And that pain dominant patient would be very appropriate for grade one or grade two to facilitate relaxation, really focusing then on the soft tissue restrictions. But that stiff dominant patient, they're not painful, they're just stiff. So then we can go into the grade three or grade four. I like that. The ramen noodle (laughs) analogy gives you a really good, yeah, Yeah. it it totally makes sense. Yeah. The hot water, relaxing the noodles. (laughs) Oh yeah. I get that. (laughs) And I'm sure that is much easier for the patient to understand as well, because, you know, they don't really kind of grasp the concept of what is all in there and what's going on. So we always need that easy way to and Explain I don't think patients have any idea what a capsule is. Like, <laughs> I tell them, you know, it's like the two ends of the bone where they meet at the joint, it's the sac around the joint. Yeah. And they're like, oh. I always tell them it's like shrink wrap and it right. just, it cinches up. Right. Exactly. That's a capsular pattern. Right? I think I might use that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> as far as the webinar that you did, what level would you say that that's targeted for entry level? Anybody that has a little bit of experience with joint mobs and what do you suggest 
as far as if somebody wanted to learn more once they took that webinar? So those are great questions. I think the level of the webinar is probably a little more intermediate, but I think it's very appropriate for new grads to help understand like there are things that you can do besides just range of motion and addressing soft tissue edema, et cetera. I, I've been really impressed. Like the new grads come out, they're really sharp. It's mm-hmm. like I can see why the CHT is only a three-year thing versus five, because I don't know, I was pretty dense when I got to school and I was <laughs> like, wow, it's great. You know, they really, they're really sharp. And I've been impressed too. Like even the OTDs and DPTs, like they are really interested in learning. They want to learn and they're, they're very invested. They learn differently. And this has been fascinating for me to see like half of our staff retired. So we've had a group of new therapists that, that are less than two years out and they learn, like they listen to podcasts, like that's how they do their learning and it's, and video clips and YouTube things, which is like, so different, but there's so many more resources out there. I, you know, I would recommend number one, if you don't understand joint kinematics and arthrokinematics, I would recommend that Newman text because it really helps you to, to figure out, like to give you a good, you need a good base of understanding that. Cause otherwise I think sometimes it can get confusing. So as far as for resources, I would encourage to take a manual therapy course. You need to practice that. And that's, I think the hard thing I do a lot of online teaching and I, I like it, but I, you need to get that hands on and taking a manual therapy course and having someone like a coworker to go with you that you can practice makes a world of difference. Because I remember early on when I first started taking manual therapy courses, I remember the instructor said, you got to try it. You got to do something. If you're like, well, I'm not sure I'm not going to do anything. And I remember he's saying he was a little, little brash, but he's like, make them better or make them worse, but do something. Don't <laughs> do nothing Because if you do nothing, you're never going to progress with your skills. And I think that's the thing. You have to be a little bit daring and, you know, try it try, you know, and, and even say to the patient, Hey, this is something new. I think this will be helpful. Patients like they're happy when their therapist is trying to do everything they can in their power to help make them better. And I I feel like we're so lucky as therapists, we still have that opportunity to develop that relationship. We can still see them once or twice a week. You know, it's different. You know, the longer I practice, the more I'm like, I, I would be hard being a physician, only seeing someone like every six or eight weeks. That would be tough. And you don't get that connection that you get with the patient. And being a therapist, you get to meet people from all walks of life that you would never meet otherwise. And I think, you know, that that connection and having them see that you are invested in their care is huge with reading like qualitative studies, you know, like if the patient believes it's going to work and the therapist believes it's going to work, they have better outcomes than a therapist with the same skill level that maybe doesn't have that emotional investment or the patient that therapist wants to do everything they can. So, you know, taking a manual therapy course where you get a chance to practice these things, I think is is so valuable. And, and it's a little bit disheartening that a lot of the CE budgets are being cut so much that they're not able. So that's why even like at the ASHT conference, I I, I know it's always craziness, but I try to do some hands-on things because I want people to just get a chance to feel it. I know myself when I watch something on the screen, like, I don't know if I totally get it until I actually have, I try it out. And so that's why I feel like there's that 
art of, of the art and science of being a therapist that I'm concerned. I hope we don't lose. And I, it's something that we really need to instill because we do a lot of hands-on care more than therapists and other walks of life, you know, sports medicine, they're pointing, no, no offense to them, but they point, they do, but they don't do the same type of hands-on care that hand therapists do, you know? So and I've, I mean, I've run into therapists that do not do a lot of hands-on. And to me, hands-on is so valuable as far as assessing and when to change a program, because it's a feel. And, you know, so many times, even when I have a student, like, you know, even just trying to explain to them passive range of motion, okay, when you're going to hit this end feel, they're like, well, what does it feel like? And I'm like, when you've stretched enough, you get to be able to identify between, okay, this is a hard end feel. This is a soft end feel. And, you know, I just think that manual component is so valuable. And I think it's valuable to the patients as well, because I feel like they, they're getting more of your one-on-one attention, I guess. And I think that, that the manual component to the the patient is valuable as well. And I think too, there are things that that patients cannot do on themselves. I mean, think about us. Like when we have aches and pains, who do we go to? We go to our coworkers. Hey, <laughs> look at my wrist. Can you, you know, <laughs> but I think that's the thing. And I always feel like too, everyone, everyone needs a tune up sometimes. And, and I see a lot of thoracic outlet patients too, and they need tune ups. They need somebody to mobilize their rib. They need somebody to do some things that maybe they can't do themselves and it's, it, it's okay. You're not a failure as a therapist. If a patient comes back and needs a tune-up here and there, it's okay. And I, I used to beat myself up like, oh, I didn't cure them for life, you know, but it's some with some things. And I think the elbow is a little bit less so that you're going to have patients returning with issues. It's more, probably see it more with our TOS population, but still, I think there is value in doing that manual hands-on treatment that certain things that they can't do on their own. You can teach them a great home program, but sometimes they do need a little more. And yeah, it's valuable. As a therapist, I feel like it's a skill set that's just as important as being able to take a good history and do a, a thorough exam. It's it's just part of the whole package. <laughs> So I think we kind of hit on everything we needed to. If you would like to find out more, definitely go into ASHT's webinar library. And I'm sure it is in there by the time this airs. So you can just take Anne's course through our webinar. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we appreciate it. Well, and you'll be presenting at this year's annual meeting, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I'm going to talk about treating VCs and DCs of the wrist. So going through and understanding, like cracking the code, I called it. I That's a little help from Mo Herman. I'm not very creative with my titles. She's like, yeah, <laughs> I need to spice it up a little. I'm like, okay. <laughs> we we're texting back and forth. And I was like, oh, okay, what about this? And she's like, perfect. I'm like, okay. But especially like for wrist instability, like What's the most scariest patient you see in your practice? Is it someone with a crush injury with multiple fractures and tendons? No, it's the 12 or 13 year old gymnast with wrist pain, right? That comes in, their parents are looking over and you're like, okay, their range of motion is fine. What do I do now? So, so what, what that's my patient population. (laughs) I treat kids and I, that yes, we have those patients come through our door regularly and you do, you're like, what? What do I do with it? Yes. What do I do? 
And two, so besides lateral elbow pain, I think one of the, the most, what has changed most about how we treat wrist instability has come out in the last, you know, five to eight years, exciting stuff. We know now which muscles we need to specifically strengthen. We know the whole proprioceptive piece from an Elizabeth Haggard's article that came out in 2010. There's so much more we can do, but it's helping to identify, like understanding what in VC and DC, VC is volar intercalated segmental instability. It's talking about which way the lunate is facing. So if it's facing volar, it's a VC, a volar instability. If it's DC, it's dorsal. Well, you can have VCs and DCs in the proximal row, but you can also have mid-carpal VCs and DCs. So helping understand what that looks like, how do you test clinically to figure that out, and then going through what planes of motion do you work in? Like if you have a scaphal lunate issue that's a DC, boy, you want to really emphasize mid-range dart thrower's motion. You don't want to do straight plane, but if you have a mid-carpal instability, that straight plane is going to be most important. And then talking about which muscles that you want to recruit. So I hope that it can be helpful for therapists to be a guide, to be like, okay, these are the tests I need to look at. This is the history. These are the problems. Here's the test. And we're going to go through the clinical test during the two-hour session and then going through like, okay, if I have, you know, I have an SL problem, the SL belotment test is positive. I need to emphasize, you know, working in this plane, and this is what I need to focus on for the muscles. So they can leave, hopefully, having had a chance to practice the test and then have in their head, hey, this is the treatment plan that I'm going to follow. Because you, those patients, you don't have to see frequently, but you, you know, I usually see them every two to three weeks, but it's really knowing like what to do when and you know, is this the right thing? Because it's a slow process and talking about orthotic management, like what's the best type of splints. And what I found, and I don't know, Kara, what you found is that some of the prefab ones are actually a lot better, at least tolerated. They use them more than some of the custom ones. So I've really gotten away from as much of the custom and using more of the prefabs, but that's great for a therapist that may not be comfortable doing that so that they have those options. So I'm excited about it confession. I have not finished my handouts yet. They're due in two weeks. I had a terrible <laughs> case of COVID this summer. I was sick for weeks. So I'm a little behind, but I think it'll be a fun course and hopefully will be helpful for therapists to take away some things that they can use right away. So I don't know about you, Kara, but she just sold me on that. I uh, yes. <laughs> well, and I know to get there early because yes. your, <laughs> your sessions oh always God. fill up. <laughs> All these people keep piling. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Brought in more and I'm like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> it is a good thing. But yeah. I feel like it's always craziness. Like at an ASHT conference, I remember back in, I think it was 2008 in Boston, I did a one on thoracic outlet. And I remember, I think it was Shrikant Chinchakar was next door. He came over. He's like, can you guys be a little quiet? You guys are having a problem here. And well, what are you, what are you up to? You know, everyone's curious because I guess the score was a little calmer, but uh, anyway. You know where the party is <laughs> in Anne's course. So, so fun. But, but that's what we, I mean, why do we get into therapy? Because we like interacting with patients. We like doing the hands-on stuff. And that's why I always like to, even though it's always chaos, it's fun to get a chance to practice those things. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, thanks again for yes, joining thank us. You. And we look forward to the annual meeting and get out there and 
do that manual therapy webinar. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I look forward to meeting you in person without a mask. I'm so excited. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Great. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast. Hands in Motion.